this week on Life and Faith. It was good to be able to go out and capture or kill those who were firing rockets at the base because they were trying to kill us and it was better to remove them from the battlefield. There's one thing you need to be philosophical and that's to be born. How do they cope with the challenges and the grief of life? He felt the guilt lift off him almost in a physical way. They are the psychological foundations of why people burn out. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. For most Australians, the experience of war comes mostly from books, movies, news broadcasts, and it all feels, in a way, quite distant, remote, another world. Australians mostly, and mercifully, have not had to factor war into the arc of their lives. But of course, there are Australians especially those in the Defence Forces, who have seen war up close. And my guest today is certainly one of those. Andrew Hastie, these days, is a federal politician representing the seat of Canning in southwest Western Australia. He's also the Shadow Minister for Defence. But prior to that, Andrew had a distinguished military career. He completed three tours of Afghanistan, firstly with the Royal Australian Armoured Corps, and then twice as a captain in the Elite Special Air Service Regiment, or SAS, fighting the Taliban. He saw plenty of action, has been deeply impacted by that experience. And I found this conversation really engaging as he talked about all of that. I think you'll enjoy it. I began the interview by asking Andrew, what was it that drew him to the Defence Force in the first place? Well, there were a couple of reasons. Number one, growing up. I was very influenced by my grandfather on my father's side. He served in World War II aboard a Catalina, which was an air-sea rescue aircraft used by the Royal Australian Air Force. And in his final mission on the 31st of March, 1945, he went in for a a rescue of two downed aviators from the, the Air Force and came under heavy fire as they landed on the water. This was up in the Indonesian archipelago. And he was shot and badly wounded, and he managed to stay alive for three hours on the flight home and was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. And I remember always as a kid just loving that story and and hearing about his time in the war. Um, The pilot of the aircraft was a a vet from Sydney University. They had a pet monkey on board called Tojo. As a kid, I was always fascinated by that. Um, I had a great uncle who, who went down with SS Montevideo, along with Peter Garrett's grandfather, and Kim Beasley's great uncle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, service was kind of a rite of passage because um, they're all citizen soldiers. Yeah. So as a young guy, I always thought, well, it might be something that I end up doing. And then 9-11 came around. At the time, I was studying a bit of philosophy, a bit of history at university. And I remembered just wanting to be involved in what happened next. Mm-hmm. And I, I felt like it was a historic moment and I felt the call to join the ADF and I did. That's fascinating. So it's an element of, as a kid, I guess, a adventure story, really, yes. isn't it? And that's built into your kind of family lore, if you like, and it stayed with you. And then you sense, as an adult, also a call into this type of work. What were you hoping to achieve as you embarked on that career? I'm not too sure. I think it was adventure. I remember watching mm. a, a documentary on Four Corners on ABC, and it was about a fort in Afghanistan called Kali Jungi. 
And it was a bunch of these intrepid journalists who went in. There were all these Al-Qaeda prisoners, Taliban prisoners. It was a big gunfight. And there were these crazy journalists in the middle of it all. And yeah. I remember thinking, wow, that looks like a lot of action and adventure. And at the time I was considering journalism as a, as a vocation, being a, yeah. a correspondent of sorts. And then it just occurred to me, well, the quickest and probably the best way to, to get involved would be through the military. And so that's where I ended up. It's really interesting because, you know, when we look at the history of World War One, for instance, people often talk about the different motivations of people heading off to that war. And adventure was a big part for a lot of those young soldiers. And yet it's always presented in this kind of cynical way, in a sense. You know, it's like, oh, and, and how naive were they to feel like that? And yet here you were many decades later with the similar not, not exactly the same, but a similar feel. And you're absolutely right, Simon, because during high school, I'd done the First World War. It seemed to be the one historical topic that we kept coming back to over my mm. six years of high school education. We'd look at the primary sources, you'd study the generals, you'd watch Gallipoli by Peter Weir. Yeah. So there's this real sense that war was about loss and waste and all the other terrible things that, that war involves. But yet, I still wanted to get involved and see a bit of the world but also there was this sense at the time as you remember in 9-11 you know sure it happened in new york and that was a, a long way away from from sydney but my year two and three primary school teacher at ashbury public school in the inner west of sydney her daughter eliza perished in one of the towers mm. and so it really brought it home that this war that was coming involved us all and australia was certainly signed up through the howard government and so it seemed obvious that I had to do something and the military was the best way to get involved. Now, I wonder when you look back, the ways in which that experience, and I'll ask you about some of the stories along the way, but the ways in which that experience ended up being fulfilling and satisfying and perhaps the ways in which it was less so, I'd be really interested in hearing what you say about that. Well, the first thing I'd say is that the troops that were sent to Afghanistan were special forces troops. It was the Special Air oh. Service Regiment. And to get to there takes at least four years minimum before you can apply for selection. And then after that, you've got to do another two years before you're deployable. Yeah. So for me, I decided to go to the Australian Defence Force Academy, uh, finish off my degree and become an officer. And I remember in 2003 as a first year cadet watching George Bush give his speech prior to the invasion of Iraq. And all of a sudden, the world was getting more complex. At first, we were out to stop Al-Qaeda, and then all of a sudden, the US, with its coalition, was invading Iraq. And mm. at that point, I was nowhere near getting sent overseas. But it was interesting to watch. And so I took a very, I took the long route to service overseas. It wasn't until 2009 that I actually got deployed to Afghanistan. And, and I should add as well, President Bush had left office, President Obama had come in to the White House, and he had basically called the Iraq war the bad war and the Afghanistan war the good war. Mm. And so I came into Afghanistan in 2009 just as there was this massive surge of US troops and also an increase in Australian troops as well. So it was a, it was a very different proposition to the one eight years prior. Yeah, and so as you are heading off to the first uh, of a number of tours in Afghanistan, can you remember what that was like, that feeling as you're sort of setting off? Was it one of excitement for the adventure? Was it something else? It was excitement. I wanted to lead my troops well, um, but I was also newly married. Mm. 
And I realized that I would be leaving my wife for nine months. And yeah. that was hard. And mm. there hadn't been that many casualties at that time. But because there was this surge of coalition troops into Afghanistan, there were more IEDs on the road. There was a sort of a greater risk that you might get injured or killed. So all of that was in the back of my mind. But it was in the front of your wife's mind. That's right. Although mm. she, she was very, very supportive, which was great. Yeah, there has to be some fear mixed in with the excitement. I think you wouldn't be human otherwise. Can I ask you a bit about the training for the SAS? So it's a very, you know, there's a lot of mystique around this and highly respected people held in high esteem. How would you describe the kind of the essence of that training? It must be lots to it, but what's going on essentially? SAS selection is 21 days long. The first week is where they try and baseline everyone. So there are people of different levels of fitness. Some are more gifted Mm. than others. But the first week is about taking sleep off everyone and pushing them to their absolute limits. And so what you realize very quickly is that there are those who enjoy their protein shake after a gym workout and like to get their feet up. And there are those who might not be as gifted, but can just keep going and going and going. So that first week is about finding out a bit about your character and how you can operate under stress without sleep. The second week is called the happy wanderer phase, where you're by yourself for six days. You've got a 40 kilo pack, a rifle, a limited amount of food, and you have to hit as many checkpoints as possible. We were sent out to the Stirling Ranges, which is a beautiful part of Western Australia. Very austere though, in the middle of winter. Mm. And you can't talk to anyone for six days. Um, You don't get any positive or negative feedback. It's just a question of who can get all the checkpoints done. And a lot of people sit by the side of the road and think this isn't for me. I'm cold, I'm hungry, I'm tired. No one's talking to me. I'm a bit lonely. See you later. I actually enjoy that part probably the most. A lot of time just to think, just putting one foot in front of the other. And uh, I think I ended up getting something like 155Ks and six of the eight peaks out at Sterling in that period. Um, And I just remember not being able to sleep at night because I was losing so much body mass and I could feel my sort of bones and my hips when I was trying to to sleep on the ground. Uh, And then the last week is called Lucky Dip, which is where they put you into small teams of about 10 people and you don't get any food. And you probably get about two to three hours sleep a night uh, for five days. And what they do is they just give you tasks that are impossible to complete mm-hmm. and really physically demanding tasks. So it might be, here's an outboard motor, here are a couple of logs, here are a couple of boxes, carry these for the next 10 kilometers through thick vegetation. And if you've ever carried an outboard motor, it's not an easy thing to carry, especially not when you're carrying all your other gear as well. And I remember thinking during one of those days, like, what is the point here? This is just yeah, I was about to ask. What, this is just mindless stuff. And, and what they were testing mm-hmm. is who can keep going when their body is saying stop, when their mind is saying stop, who can finish the mission? Because that's what they're looking for, people who can just keep at it. And so over that five-day period, you see people drop off. We do a series of exercises called Rate Your Mates where you sit down in a group and they pull out a piece of paper And you have to rate everyone in your team from one to 10. And they get a sense of who are the natural leaders and who are leaders because of their position or their rank. And so it's an opportunity for the selection staff to have a look at the officers particularly and say, well, this officer is consistently scoring eight or nine or 10. There must be something about Mm. their leadership that is not working in in the group. Uh, So it's a fascinating character study. And I think in the end of the day, they're looking at who you are under pressure. 
sounds like Survivor. Um, it it is a bit like Survivor. <laughs> uh, about that sort of aspect of the military training and the psychology of preparing soldiers for war and the perhaps dehumanizing element of that. Because you are programmed, I imagine, to think of the enemy in very abstract terms, aren't you? Well, that's right. I mean, and selection is just the first part. Yeah. You're not actually doing any sort of formal combat training during that period. That's for them to look at you. And then after selection, it follows 18 months of training. Um, it's called the reinforcement cycle. And that's where you learn all your combat skills, close quarter shooting, close quarter fighting. You get your insertion skill, parachuting, diving, mobility, high-speed driving, all those kind of fun things, roping, combat survival, which was uh, fun seven days in the jungles of Papua New Guinea, basically just being hungry. Realizing there's a lot of hunger here. <laughs> a lot, there's a lot of hunger. Your, your weight fluctuates a lot in that first six months mm. or so. Resistance to interrogation training or conduct after capture. So back to your question, that 18 months of reinforcement cycle gets you to a very, very high level of combat proficiency. You're shooting thousands and thousands and thousands of rounds. You get tested for lead poisoning because the amount of contact you have yeah. with ammunition. And it becomes second nature. They call it unconscious competence where you move into a room, say, as part of a, a building clearance, you see a target and you don't even remember seeing your sights. You just pull the trigger and the target goes down. And it's that kind of yeah. speed and dynamism that they're trying to build into you. There's no sense that you're being dehumanized. You're just becoming very, very sharp at your martial skills. Um, I think if I was to reflect upon the last war that we were at in Afghanistan, dehumanization happens overseas, not back home. Yes, interesting. So let's get to when you go on these operations. So I think I'm right in saying you did three tours of Afghanistan. So I, so I did tour one was with a regular battalion and I was yeah. you know commanding a cavalry troop. The second tour was a short stint that I did with the SAS. And then my last tour to Afghanistan was in troop command of an SAS troop where we were targeting Taliban leadership, bomb makers and rocketeers, keeping the base safe. And then I did a final trip to the Middle East where I was working as part of an intelligence task force looking at ISIS um, mm -hmm. right at its peak in 1415. Gosh, I can imagine what that must have been like. But the... So let's think about that SAS operation the third time you were there. What kind of things did that involve? Uh, you know, what were you doing day to day? So our job was pretty much to take it to the bad guys. On my first trip, I did a lot of convoy escort. I did a lot of what they call battlefield circulation, where I'd take out this commanding officer and we'd go and visit all the patrol bases in, in the different valleys. And I think I, we hit four or five IEDs during that period. I had four mm. vehicles destroyed. Thankfully, no one was badly wounded. That was the strength of the Bushmaster vehicle, Australian-made Bushmaster. Mm. And so we were very reactive. In 2013, when I went out, we were out there to take it to the enemy and we were going to find those guys who were putting the roadside bombs out for, for the Aussie troops. We were going to take it to the leaders and really disrupt and shatter their cohesion. And that meant very short-notice tasks intelligence-led operations where we'd jump on, you know, four Blackhawks, fly out top speed in the middle of the day, sometimes in the evening, and hit a target and uh, capture mm. or kill a, a Taliban leader. Yeah, well, that would have been high-octane stuff, I'm imagining, and pretty high-adrenaline. Very high-adrenaline, very exciting stuff. You know, it, it was nice to be holding trigger on some of these things rather than waiting for someone else to blow you up. It was nice to be taking it to them and getting inside their decision cycle. And did you feel like you were doing something 
that needed doing. Did you have that sense? Well, yeah, because because you had Australians, you had the local population, you had other coalition partners in a base, and at night they'd fire rockets at the base. Mm. And a couple of times those rockets landed. People were wounded. Um, I, I remember a Dutch soldier being killed uh, back in 2009 by a rocket. And so it was good to be able to go out and capture or kill those who were firing rockets at the base because they were trying to kill us and it was better to remove them from the battlefield. We had reports of someone who was planning to, to drive a, a truck bomb into the base as well. We went after that target and got them. And I remember one job, we went in at night and actually recovering a suicide vest from one of the compounds, which was going to be used down in Tarancot. So we had the opportunity to do some good works and protect those around us. This is Life and Faith, and I'm speaking with Andrew Hasty, and we are hearing about his experiences in the Australian Defence Forces and especially in the SAS in Afghanistan. Now, as you can imagine, those experiences were intense, confronting, actually. And in a sense, nobody gets out of these experiences without scars. And you'll hear some of that in the next part of the interview. But I was interested in Andrew's perception of the local population and his interactions with them and understanding their lives. Here's Andrew Hasty again. The first trip, I got a much better sense of the local population because I was out there. I was sleeping out in the desert nearby villages. I'd often make a point of supplementing our rations by going into a town and buying bread from the locals mm. or watermelons or pomegranates. And I, I love my time over there. I, the, the smells are still with me of the, the wood fires, the spices, the, the vegetation. It was fascinating to be there. And I remember in 2009, we were, we were up north and it was a very remote part of Afghanistan. Very poor people, subsistence farmers. And their tractor had become bogged and their tractor was their lifeblood. Mm-hmm. So I was there with six 13-ton vehicles and we offered to drag the tractor out, which we did. And the elders had nothing to pay me with except seed. And I still remember them grabbing a handful of seed and, and putting that in my hands as a way of thanking me. And it was just a reminder that these are people, they're living very tough lives and they were honoring me with that. And that really made sure that I stayed soft towards the Afghan people. They're lovely people, very welcoming. Had lots of chai, even had chai with the Taliban uh, in 2013. And I uh, had a few chuckles because I remember flying out to one village and saying, hey, I'm here on behalf of the, the national Afghan government. And them sort of having a chuckle because we both knew there was no sign at all of a national government. There was no poles and wires, there was no roads, there was no telecommunications infrastructure. This was a village up some valley completely disconnected from what was happening in Kabul. So there are a lot of paradoxes and ironies like that. I always tried to remind myself that these people are image bearers, and I mean that in a Christian sense, that they're made in the image of God and they have inherent worth and dignity. And I really clung on to that because war can be very dehumanizing. Let me ask you about that because you would have seen through your experiences of war, humanity at some of its lowest points and some of its more elevated points, I imagine. Yeah, what does your faith tell you about human nature and how does that cohere with or, or not with your experience of war? Well, in war, I saw the very best of human nature and the very worst of human nature. And mm. oftentimes you find yourself at the extremes. Um, as a Christian, I believe that we are fallen. 
So I'm not a utopian. Mm. Um, Immanuel Kant called it the crooked timber of humanity, man's smudge. We're all broken and fallen in a certain sort of way. So in war, where there's an absence of law, although there are the rules of war, but when you're dealing in a broken or a failed state, things happen that shouldn't happen. So I always went in with that mindset, expecting the worst, expecting to see things that normally wouldn't happen, say in Australia under the rule of law. And so in order to prepare for that, as a leader, you actually have to really put in boundaries and make sure that your people understand what is expected of them and remind them that we are accountable. And I had to do this in a cross-cultural context as well with some of the Afghan partners that I was working with who wanted to take matters into their own hands. And I had to say, look, you're a Muslim. You know that it's wrong to shed innocent blood. So let's agree that we should go no further here. Let's take this person back and have the authorities deal with them. There's no point you um, having blood on your hands today. Those sorts of appeals became sort of fairly commonplace towards the end. Well, all our listeners will be thinking, well, we've heard the Brereton Inquiry, we've heard times where it doesn't appear that that is what Australian soldiers did, at least in a couple of cases, and we've had this revelations of war crimes. That must be very confronting for you and challenging your sense of the culture of the ADF and what it stands for, I imagine. Yeah, I think it is very confronting for those involved. Um, I wrote an op-ed back in 2020 in response to the Brereton Report, and I said, I believe in regimental honour. And so I I feel a sense of shame that this finding was made against the Special Air Service Regiment. And it reflects on the broader ADF as well, and us as a country. But I do want to add that not many countries have done what we did. In fact, we led uh, the Five Eyes community by initiating the Brereton Report. So in a sense, we've demonstrated that Yes, we can fail and we should always expect for things to go wrong. There's plenty of examples in public life of people failing, whether it be through misconduct or lapses in integrity. It's what you do about it that counts. And I think the Brereton Inquiry was a reminder to us as a people that we are under the law and that we will hold ourselves to account and we will be transparent about the times that we've done things wrong. And I think it's really going to set us up well for the future because now we have on the record for troops in the future an example of what happens when things don't go to plan, when when leadership fails and when people are left to do their own thing. Well, those revelations of wrongdoing, things that surprised you or shocked you or, or did you kind of sense that you could see how that could happen? Some of the revelations shocked me, but I could see that people were getting very callous towards the end of the war. And by the time I took mm. over as a troop commander in 2013, I was leading soldiers who'd been over five, six times. Some had lost friends. And there's a hardness of heart that develops over time. And so my challenge as an officer was to ensure that we we maintained our standard and that we did what the Australian people expected us to do in accordance with our our laws, traditions and customs, which wasn't easy, by the way. No, I bet. And I think I've heard you say that there's questions around how many times someone should be on these deployments for that very reason, that it can harden you in ways that you shouldn't be hardened. That's right. And I think our political class have a lot to answer for here because they use the SAS to do a lot of the work and the heavy lifting in Afghanistan, which could have been done by our infantry. Hmm. And instead, they wanted to send our troops away. And I think the assumption was that if an SAS soldier was killed, 
the Australian public would be more accepting of that because they're the SAS. That's what they do. They're the tip of the spear. Mm. And so what happened was you, you had the, the share of the fighting done by a small group of people over a long span of time. And I think the yeah. impact on people and families becomes quite acute over time. Instead, we could have spread that burden across a larger force had we given some of those tasks to the infantry. Now, Andrew, you were involved in an awful incident. Um, and it was an example of how things can go unintentionally wrong in war. Can I ask you about that and the sort of ways in which that coloured your sense of war and perhaps changed it or, or what was the impact of that for you? Sure. So it was the first, I think it was the first or second time I'd been outside the wire. It was February 2013. And we were heading out to one of the patrol bases, which was being run by the Afghans to give them some batteries, some Red Bull, some supplies, just to boost their morale because they were pretty much surrounded. And you got to understand at that time in the war, Obama had said, we're going to surge in in 2009 and then we're going to taper off. And by 2013, we're definitely tapering off. And so the Taliban knew this. They were just waiting us out. So the poor Afghans who'd chosen to partner with us, uh, they could see the receding troops, as it were. And um, I think they were taking it pretty hard in terms of morale. So we went out there to, to see them. As soon as we were coming into land, uh, we got told that there was enemy activity around the patrol base and there was a possibility of an attack. We were intercepting telecommunications or their radio calls between each other. We believed that we had a, a lead on the person who was directing traffic and under the rules of engagement, we could take preemptive action to neutralize the threat. Uh, we called in an Apache gunship to do so and there was a, a miscommunication, a misunderstanding, basically alternate universes. And uh, what we were seeing on the ground was different to what he was seeing up in the sky. He opened fire and two boys were killed quite a distance away. I remember the moment and I just, I felt physically ill, basically, once I realized what had happened. Any sense of adventure, any sense of excitement quickly gives way to revulsion. And uh, this deep sense of sadness and unease. And it's at that point where you can't actually let yourself fall apart. This is where all the training that you've done, particularly on selection when you're at your emotional lowest, kicks in. You've got to keep going. You've got to go out there. You've got to attempt to render first aid. Um, you've got to report back. You've got to make sure that you're still secure. And yeah, I remember it was a pretty dark day. I think one of the things that yeah. really struck home is the speed at which the information traveled. By the time I got back to base to report it to my commanding officer, the president, Hamid Karzai, knew about it. Wow. And it was a reminder of how quickly information on the battlefield was being moved around. You ended up going in and speaking to the family of the people killed. That must have been an extraordinary moment for you. It was. It was a very tough week because I had there was an inquiry. I got questioned about my actions. And then there was a decision to go out and pay reparations to the family, mm. which is what they did. And the decision was to leave me off the flight and to have someone else handle it. And I went down to the flight line as they were getting ready to get on the helicopters and there was an interpreter there and he said, where are you? Where, why, where's, your, where's your gun? Where's your helmet? Where's your body armor? And I said, I'm not coming. And he said, no, no, this is about Afghan honor. You need to go. Right. And so I, I spoke to my commanding officer and I said, look, I've got to go. And he said, no worries, run away, grab your gear. And I did. 
we flew in, uh, we met in a compound and, uh, the uncle was there. These are a very poor family. The father had already died and the 16 year old brother of the two boys was there. He was looking very, very angry as you can imagine. Um, and the uncle was sort of negotiating. He was the leader in the thing. And I just picked my moment and I just said to the uncle, well, I was the one who gave the order to fire and I'm sorry. And, uh, he said, I forgive you. And I could see the, the young brother was very upset, but I, in a sense, I wanted him to be able to look at someone and to see that someone was taking responsibility. Mm. I think it was really important for my psychological processing and also being able to carry on because having that word from the Afghan uncle meant a lot to me and it was a, it was a great sense of release. And it's a reminder that perhaps a lot of people who struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder after events like this, and I'm sure there's many, being able to confront the reality of the situation, look at the people who have been hurt through it, apologize for it and not be reconciled because there's no way you can reconcile the, the loss of two boys, but at least taking responsibility for it and being accountable goes a long way to healing and working through it. Yeah, that sense of him addressing you in the way that he did and saying, I forgive you. That's a huge thing. And it's hard forgiving people and to receive forgiveness. That's a profound thing, isn't it? It is. There hasn't been a February 28th since that time. It's been 10 years now where I haven't thought about those two boys and prayed for their family. I don't know where they are. They were sort of nomadic people. But at least knowing that I was able to make contact with them has been helpful. The hard part I found it is when, you know, my son is eight and my daughter is six. Right. They're the age of the two boys. And, you know, I look at my son and I look at my daughter and their interests, they're so childlike. They're, they're just happy little people. And for war to extinguish two little boys 10 years ago, it's, that's when it really hits home. It's hard. And are there ways in which your faith helped you to process what must have been a very difficult period of your life? Yeah, I remember overseas reading the Psalms a lot and the Psalms are helpful in, in expressing your emotions. Oftentimes I found myself quite inarticulate and unable to express how I was feeling. And so having yeah. someone else's voice, that being the Psalmist, was very, very helpful. But in terms of processing what had happened, first of all, I think prayer was really important for me. And just giving, you know, as, as a Christian, and, you know, some of your listeners may not be Christians, but just giving it over to God, um, realizing that I'm too small, too broken to be able to make sense of it all and to just handing it over. And um, in that sense, releasing a lot of the pain or the emotion and then just being reminded of the, the story of reconciliation at the heart of the Christian faith. And I think that's why it was so important for me to be able to apologize because that's, you know, repentance or, or saying sorry is one of the most important parts of what we do as Christians. And so for your listeners who aren't unfamiliar with that, that kind of really helped me work through it. And I, I often think to myself, how would I be today had we just kind of swept down the carpet and moved on? I, I think I'd probably be a broken man, um, but thankfully... I was able to take responsibility and be accountable for it. What are the ways in which your views of war have stayed the same and what are the ways it changed through your experiences? I think by serving at the pointy end, I've come to understand the ugliness of war, how it's degrading for all 
how it should only be used. I can see why we have just war theory because war should only ever be entered into as a way of returning to peace when all other options have been exhausted. Um, I know that sounds contradictory, but sometimes there's no other option. So when people talk about wars of choice, I disagree with that. There shouldn't be a war of choice. It has to be the principle of necessity. You know, is this war necessary? And so in that sense, I, I really reject this idea that war can be used as an instrument of policy, just like you can, you know, apply taxation policy or immigration policy. You gestured towards this, but we had an episode recently on moral injury. And I wonder if you could comment about that and what you understand that to be and how you've seen that in your experiences in the ADF. I think moral injury is a real thing. I think the more I speak to some of my former colleagues and veterans, moral injury is something they struggle with immensely. I think moral injury occurs in the grey space. Um, government sets policy. The ADF takes that policy then comes up with an operational concept, deploys troops forward, and then down on the ground when you're, you're actually doing the hard work, in this case, hunting Taliban leaders and taking them off the battlefield. There's a lot of grey there. And I think moral injury happens when you're, you're operating in this very opaque space and you feel this sense of, well, your conscience is activated in ways that you hadn't anticipated. You thought it'd be nice and easy to go to war, but it's actually not. And you have to override those natural instincts, the, the law on your heart, to get the job done. Taking another human life is not an easy thing to do. Mm. And I think over time, that's why you end up with moral injury because you're doing things that aren't normal. The way to address the wounds of moral injury are very complex too. And we've talked about the fact that there's certain psychological techniques that might go some degree but towards healing, but as long as you need something at the spiritual level. Would you agree with that? I totally agree with that because if it was just psychological, then you know a few mind tricks should be able to sort it out or some sort of uh, alteration to your thinking should be able to sort it out. But it's deeply spiritual. It goes right to the heart of who you are. And I think sitting down and talking to other people and saying, you know, I, I had no good choices in that situation. I tried to make the best choice I had, but it's a broken, fallen world. Mm -hmm. And I carry man's smudge too. It's in those moments when you're talking to another vet who understands where you've been that you start to feel a sense of comfort and closure, which is why you can do all this stuff. You can pour a heap of money into veterans, but I think providing opportunities for people to sit down and chat and engage and, and work through what they've been through is probably the most important thing you can facilitate. Do chaplains still have a good role to play in the ADF for this very reason? Yeah, look, I was struggling with moral injury and, and I remember going to a, a chaplain quite a fair bit actually over in Afghanistan mm. um, just as someone to talk to. Um, I also had the, the additional connection in that I was a Christian and I was able to enter into that spiritual relationship as well with the chaplain. But I think it's absolutely critical. And back in 2009, I made a point of grabbing the chaplain and saying, grab your body armor, grab your communion kit. I'm happy to take you outside the wire and we'll go and visit the troops. Mm -hmm. And so he came around with me and uh, did mass and communion for, for soldiers in the different patrol bases that we visited. So I'm a big believer in chaplains. I think you've definitely got people who will do social work, you've got psychologists, but there is a spiritual side to Australians. Mm. Now, not everyone's a Christian. So the question is, how, how do we accommodate for the increasing diversity, the spiritual diversity out there? 
whether it be Buddhist faith, Islamic faith, mm. Sikhs serving in, in the Australian army now. These are the challenges that we face as a pluralist society. And then finally, Andrew, you mentioned your young kids, the ADF or politics as a career that you'd encourage your kids <laughs> to go into <laughs> either of those. Uh, look, I, I, I'm a big believer in public service. I, so I would encourage them to do either of those things or not do those things. I think everyone has unique gifting and everyone has a, a role to play and, a, and their own path to walk. So I want them to know that I love them and I'll support them in what they do. But I wouldn't be disappointed if one of them went into the military. I'm not sure about politics, though. I think <laughs> <laughs> my wife often says it's much easier being an SAS wife than a politician's wife because um, the demands on family life are so much more intense. Even though you're coming and going as an SAS guy, politics is just relentless by comparison. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart. A huge thanks today to Andrew Hasty for his openness and honesty and detailed retelling of some incredible experiences. Please do send this episode to someone who you think would appreciate it. We love to get Life and Faith out to more and more people and love to get your help with that. You can make contact with us at Life and Faith at podcast at publicchristianity.org. We'd love to hear from you. Well, thanks again this week to our producer, the high-octane Alan Douthwaite. Next week. The book that Dad gave to these hitchhikers was really one of the best hitchhikers guides the galaxy in existence. And I maintain that it still is. I'd recommend it to anybody.